like the other New Testament epistles, uh, which is just really a fancy word for letters, like the other New Testament letters, the book of Revelation is, is also a letter of sorts. It was written to the seven churches in Asia. They are listed in verse 11, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We saw last week that those are not code words for anything. They're actual churches in the first century. And yet, nevertheless, they are representative of things that um, we should emulate and things that we should avoid as we try as churches to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. But they were real historical churches, and the book of Revelation was written, first and foremost, primarily to them. As the book of Ephesians was written primarily to the church in Ephesus, in Galatians, to the church in Galatia, and so forth. And so Revelation was not written to you. But, as it is with all the other New Testament letters, the book of Revelation was written for you. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, describes a section of Old Testament history. And it says, these things took place for our sake. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11 says they were written down for our instruction. And so we recognize that in the scripture we read of real historical events and there are letters written to real historical people. And yet nevertheless God superintends this in such a way that these things are caused to be written down and recorded and preserved for the sake of all God's people in every age. And so the book of Revelation was not written to you, but like the rest of the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures, by extension, the New Testament written, the New Testament writings, including the book of Revelation, are also for you. If you are an unbeliever, they are for you, first and mainly by way of warning and exhortation and motivation to repent and to believe in Jesus. To warn you of the perils of continuing outside of Christ Jesus and of the blessedness of turning from your sin toward Christ Jesus. To inform you what a life committed to Jesus would look like as you consider what you will do with the claim of Christ upon your life. The scriptures present you with both the sober realities of following Christ in terms of the difficulty and challenges, so that, as Jesus said, you may count the cost, and yet the Scriptures also portray a life of great blessedness attached to following Jesus, so that you may count the cost and see that it is indeed going to be worth it if you repent and believe. In this way, unbelievers, the Scriptures are first and foremost and primarily for you in this sense. If you are a believer, if you have already turned from your sins and trusted in Christ Jesus, the scriptures are for you in a richer and fuller way. The writings contain all the multifaceted guidance, instruction, chastisement, encouraging, encouragement that you will need as you make your way through this life. The scriptures are the all-sufficient revelation of spiritual things 
for the child of God. This is true of the scripture as a whole, and as we talked about last week, Revelation is part of scripture, which means that it is intended by God for you, for your warning, unbeliever, for your instruction and guidance, believer. It is not to be neglected, but it's to be read and studied and understood. Bear this in mind throughout this whole series. I'm not going to say this every week, but bear this in mind. Revelation was intended by God for you. As we recognize, or as we read this book, we will see that in many ways it is foreign to us. The, it is written to first century churches, and there is all kinds of strange imagery in here which seems quite foreign. But believe that it is true of Revelation as it is true of the rest of Scripture, that this is God-breathed, holy writ, not not to you, it's to the original seven churches in the first century, but it is for you. The first thing we see as we consider our passage this morning, Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 to 8, is grace and peace to you. Well, to who? Again, primarily the seven churches in the first century, all those ones listed in 11. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. But implicitly, by extension, this is for grace and peace to all true churches, including Covenant Reformed Baptist Church of Barbados here in the 21st century. For there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. According to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 6. So we are of the same faith as these original churches to whom Revelation was written. And so what belongs to one Christian or one church by way of spiritual standing and rights and privileges of the covenant of grace in one age or in one place belongs to all of us who have shared a share in that same covenant of grace. And so grace and peace to you, Covenant Reformed Baptist Church. Grace, that unmerited favor, being dealt with better than we deserve. Peace, being reconciled to God and to one another by the blood of the cross, as Ephesians 2 goes on to talk about. After saying, by grace are you saved, by grace you have peace, not only with God, but with one another. Grace and peace to you, Covenant Reformed Baptist Church, from whom? Grace and peace from our triune God, this passage shows us. A, from he who is and who was and who is to come. B, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, see from Jesus Christ. Let us briefly elucidate what is packed into each of those phrases. He who is, who and was and is to come. This is obviously God. There is no other eternal being but God. Even the angels are created 
All of us are, are finite beings. Though we will never die, we will continue indefinitely in that direction, in either heaven or hell. There is a point looking in that direction where there is a time before which we did not exist. So it is with everything and everyone but God. The only one who is and who was and who is to come is God. And we see because John goes on to talk about the Spirit and the Son, we see that here is enumerated particularly the Father. And then he says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. This must be a designation of the Holy Spirit. Because as Joel Beakey points out, grace and peace are only ever from God in the scripture. So if grace and peace are from the seven spirits who are before God's throne, then by this is Man, the Holy Spirit. This phrase occurs in Revelation a few times. Chapter 3 and verse 1. The words of Him who has the seven spirits of God. Chapter 4 and verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. Chapter 5 and verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. In apocalyptic literature, we have many instances of numer numerical symbolism. And... Many of you will know already that the number seven typically indicates some sort of completeness. And this is the case here. The Holy Spirit is one. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13 makes this abundantly plain. It says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, Slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. And so clearly there is only one Holy Spirit. We don't even need to go to Corinthians to see that. Revelation chapter 1, even the same chapter, verse 10, says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Not, I was in the spirits on the Lord's day. And elsewhere in the book we read about the Spirit, singular. And so this is simply a case of apocalyptic uh, numerical symbolism being used to denote the completeness and, and the fullness of the Spirit of God. So grace and peace to you from the Holy Spirit. And he is said to be before the throne. And this symbolizes that he is with God's people, you know. After all, where are we, God's people, in Revelation? Listen to chapter 7 and verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing where? Before the throne, and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, 
and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So the Spirit of God is described in Revelation chapter 1 as being among us in His fullness and in His completeness. He has sealed us. It is a down payment of the fullness of that which we are to inherit, according to Ephesians chapter 1. He is the very presence of God. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. We see the fulfillment of that in Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is also among us as the power of God. For all that God intends to do in us and through us, the Holy Spirit is among the people of God in His fullness, according to the book of Revelation. And grace and peace are accorded to us from the Spirit, here in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. And then, grace and peace, not only from Him who is and who was and who is to come, God our Father, not only from the Spirit who is among us in His fullness, but grace and peace from Jesus Christ, who is here described at length. Let's turn our attention now to that, the description of Jesus Christ in this passage. First, we see him called the faithful witness. And the word here translated as, as witness is also apparently the word that we get our word martyr from. That faithful martyr, the first of all the martyrs, of all those who have been killed for the truth, of all those who have been killed because they lined up on God's side and refused to love the world and the things of the world, Jesus is the first and the foremost, the archetype, the forerunner who took up his cross and did what was required of him in obedience to God. And yet he did not stay dead, but he is the firstborn from the dead. This is similar imagery to the language of first fruits, which is used elsewhere, as in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus is the first fruits from the dead, first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. When you see one apple on the apple tree just before harvest time, it gives you an indication that we're almost there. There are many more apples coming. This is the first fruits. Likewise, the firstborn of many children to come. The historical context of Revelation is that the early church was being persecuted badly. The Apostle John had a man whom he discipled named Polycarp. Some of you may have heard of him. Polycarp was discipled by John per personally. And when they came to arrest Polycarp, he was an 86-year-old man, and they came in and found him praying. He instructed his servants to prepare the, the soldiers a meal. They took him and he serenely went with them, went to the, uh, in front of the crowds where he was to be martyred publicly. 
and he was told to say, turn, turn and gesture towards the Christians and say, away with the atheists. But instead he turned towards the crowds and he said, away with the atheists. <laughs> and he, they said, will you not recant? And he said, 86 years. Paraphrasing here, but 86 years my king and my savior have been so good to me. How could I now desert him? And they killed Polycarp, this, this faithful man, this disciple of John. Well, Polycarp had a disciple named Irenaeus. And Irenaeus, therefore, is basically sort of two discipleships away from John, if I can put it that way. I don't want to say two generations, but you know what I'm saying. And Irenaeus says that Revelation was written toward the end of the Emperor Domitian's reign. So I take that as a pretty credible source. Um, theologians and commentators have been split, either that this was written um, before 70 AD, in the 60s at some point, or that it was written in the 90s, the AD 90s. But I think Irenaeus solves the problem for us. And to my mind, uh, not only is there a compelling case from other evidence, but also if someone so close to Polycarp, who is in turn so close to John, tells us that he wrote it towards the end of Domitian's reign. I think that's pretty credible evidence. So here we have the Emperor Domitian in the highest seat of power in the Roman Empire, and he was absolutely vicious. All you have to do is Google his name after church. I won't even bother to get into all of it, but we've read about some horrible things done uh, not only to Christians, but just to people in general by vicious tyrants. And Domitian fits the bill, whether Christians or even others in the empire who crossed him, Domitian was a vicious man. D-O-M-I-T-I-A-N. Domitian. And so, writing to the churches in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea, and setting before them, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a portrait of Jesus, who is the consummate, faithful martyr and the firstborn from the dead. All of these would be emboldened to be faithful to Jesus even unto death and to know that even if they should be killed for the sake of the name. Jesus said, whoever believes in me Though he dies, yet shall he live. Jesus' resurrection is tangible, objective, proof positive that there is something stronger than death. There is someone stronger than death. And that it is possible to rise after one dies. Jesus has done it. And if he has done it, and I believe that I may live again as well. And therefore, I may also be a faithful martyr. After this, Jesus is called the ruler of the kings of the earth. Still in verse 5. Contra Domitian, who expected people to call him Lord and God. Jesus is the only ultimate Lord. And the only God. Yes, Rome is 
real and legitimate, or was, as we've been studying on Sunday nights uh, over the last couple of months, we recognize that there is no authority except from God, including Rome and Domitian. There were legitimate geopolitical boundaries and there was a legitimate jurisdiction that Domitian had over his citizens, even if he abused that. In that way, Domitian was no usurper of Rome's throne. But in calling himself Lord and God, he had tried to take too much for himself. For there is a more lasting kingdom. There is a better kingdom. As Nebuchadnezzar saw in a dream in Daniel chapter 2 of a statue knocked down and smashed by a great stone. God will set up a kingdom. This is a quote from Daniel 2. God will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed and it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Whether it's Rome or whether it's Barbados or whether it's the United States of America or whether it is Canada, Jesus' reign will outlast Domitian's and it will outlast Mia Motley's and Joe Biden's and Justin Trudeau's. Moreover, as we will see when we get to Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is Lord over human history. And he is unfolding events even now through Domitian and Mia Motley and Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau. In keeping with what is written in that symbolic scroll in Revelation chapter 5. Who can open that scroll? Who? The Lamb. And so there are wars and injustices and famines and plagues and so forth, which we will see again and again as we make our way through Revelation in the coming months. These things are real, and God's people have to come to terms with these things. This is not going to be your best life now. These things are real, but all is unfolding as Jesus opens the scroll. And so not only is Jesus' kingdom going to outlast Rome, Rome has fallen. And Barbados, one day, even if it is at the return of Christ, will fall. And so will the United States of America, and so will Canada. But Jesus' reign will continue eternally. In this way, Jesus is ruler above and over the kings of the earth. He's a better ruler, there's a better kingdom. But also he is right now, Lord over human history and all of these men and women are doing his bidding whether they know it, are conscious of it, acknowledge it, like it or not. What is decreed by God will come to pass. God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. In spite of the kings of the earth who gather themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed saying let us cast their cords from us and burst their bonds asunder. Surely this is an encouragement to the first century church under the reign of Domitian. Jesus is 
the faithful martyr. He's the firstborn from the dead, and he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And though this king is glorious, he has condescended to love us, to him who loves us. Verse 5 says, right after setting Jesus forth before our eyes as the ruler of the kings of the earth. He loves us. Amazing love. How can it be? How can it be, first of all, that he should love us, even if it just said that to him who loves us? Be glory and dominion forever. What amazing love. And yet it says, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? This glorious Jesus, though he was the first and the archetype faithful martyr, he was not like all the other martyrs who died simply after the way of man just dying. Jesus died as a lamb who was slain, as a substitute for sinners like you and I. He died for us in our place, condemned he stood. And in this way he freed us from our sins by his blood. Our sins rendered us miserable but also liable to condemnation. Jesus bore in himself the penalty that we deserved for our sins. This is called propitiation. It means that he turned the wrath of God away from us towards himself and propitiated the wrath of God. Freed us from our sins. Negatively, he spared us something. He freed us from that to which our sins rendered us liable. But positively, he gives us something. Next, it says right here that he made us a kingdom. Priests. This is a clear allusion back to Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 to 6. After the Lord had brought the people of Israel up out of Egypt, he says this. Or sorry, I said 16. I meant 19. Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 to 6. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, <coughs> on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Note there, immense blessedness offered and held out 
to the Israelites. But notice also a very big if. If. Indeed. You will keep. My, obey my voice and keep my covenant. Then. Then. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. And a kingdom of priests. In the old covenant. We can see very much. Very clearly. Don't mistake me. We can see very, very clearly the grace of God in condescending to be in covenantal relationship with the people of Israel. It wasn't something that they were owed. It wasn't something that they deserved to have God bring them out of Egypt and dwell among them in the tabernacle and so on and so forth. You can see all kinds of grace in God's dealings with the people of Israel. And in that sense, this covenant was a gracious covenant. But... You have to see and you have to reckon with that if. The reality is for Old Covenant Israel that what they did would either result in blessedness or curses. And that's enumerated at great length in Deuteronomy 28 to 30. And I've preached that length on it elsewhere. But just note that if. If you will do this, then... In this way, the Old Covenant was works-based, in that it depended on the people's performance to either achieve blessedness or to be placed under a curse. The New Testament often highlights God's graciousness to Israel. Again, as I said, it's so obvious and so apparent that God was gracious to Old Covenant Israel. And the New Testament acknowledges a, a typological or typological relationship between Israel and the church, which basically means this, simply, in passing. Something like this, being saved from sin and being on a pilgrimage to heaven is like being rescued from Egypt and being on our way to the promised land. So there are similarities in this sense. However, when the relationship between Sinai and Calvary is discussed explicitly, when the relationship between the covenants are discussed explicitly, there is always contrast, not identification, as if they are really the same covenant wearing different outfits, as the case may be. Galatians 5 talks about two covenants, one bearing children for slavery, one, bearing free children. Hebrews 12. But you have not come to Sinai. Instead, you have come uh, in, implicitly to, it says here, to Mount Zion in, in 12, but obviously, in Hebrews 12, but obviously that's by virtue of Calvary, right? And Hebrews 8 is, is probably the most explicit in contrasting these covenants. It says that, in Hebrews 8 and verse 6, that Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So there are different promises pertaining to the old covenant and the new covenant and so forth. And there is, there is a better covenant. Speaking of a new covenant, Hebrews 8, 13, he makes the first one obsolete. What I want to show you is this. 
Revelation chapter 1 is not the only place in the Bible that alludes to Exodus 19. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in verses 9 and 10, we read this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is alluding here to, to two sections of the Bible. One is Exodus 19, where it is promised that if you obey God's voice and keep his covenant, then you will be a kingdom, a nation, and priests. The other is Hosea where Hosea is called to go and love a prostitute. And the children are called various symbolic names, the children that spring from this union. And one is no mercy. And then later that kid's name is changed to mercy. That's what Peter is telling us here, is that it's not because we were good it's not because we obeyed God's voice and kept God's covenant that now we have become a nation and priests to God. It's because, though we were called no mercy, God has changed our name to mercy because of what Jesus has done. And because of what Jesus has done, because he kept God's voice, obeyed God's voice and kept God's covenant, now we are a kingdom and priests. This is the sense of it here in Revelation chapter 1. We had sins to be freed from. We didn't obey God's voice and keep his covenant such that now we have earned being a kingdom, priests to God. Rather, it is because Jesus loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Because of what he has done, he has made us a kingdom priests. We are citizens then of his kingdom, his jurisdiction, and to him the whole earth has been promised. We are dual citizens now of two kingdoms, one imperfect and temporal, whether your passport says Barbados or U.S. or Canada or wherever else. It's an imperfect and temporal kingdom. And yet if you're a Christian, you are also a citizen, you bear a spiritual passport, so to speak, of a kingdom that is perfect and eternal. And we long for the day when the seventh trumpet sounds, as Revelation 11 says, and the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he reigns forever and ever. What a great privilege that is. And Christ has made us priests, it says here. Now this is perhaps strange imagery to us, especially if we're not very familiar with the Old Covenant priesthood. Thankfully, many of you are, as we've been studying through the Old Covenant in great detail in our Sunday night series over the last couple of years. We spent a lot of time looking at the priesthood. These guys were busy doing the work of worship. And they 
served as intermediaries between God and the rest of the people, as well as between the people and God. So they, they faced a manward direction as representatives of God, and they faced a Godward direction as representatives of man. And the rest of the time they were busy about the work of worship. So whether they were with someone in the nation of Israel who needed to offer a sacrifice and they acted in their intermediary capacity to help them offer up that sacrifice, or whether the temple was empty and they were simply lighting the lamps or, or cleaning up ash from the altar or whatever, they were busy about the work of worship. Well, certainly right now, we can understand the role of priests in, in some sense as being those who stand in a manward direction representing God, going to all nations, making disciples of them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. And, and going to God in prayer, facing a Godward direction with the needs and concerns of the lost around us, weighing on us and bearing them upon our shoulders and upon our, our breastplate as the priest of old did into the presence of God. Of course, we recognize that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So ultimately, we point people to Christ because we can't dispense grace and so on and so forth. But we are called to act, in some sense, as intermediaries between God and a lost world. To share in the work of Christ as ambassadors of Christ, as Paul says in Corinthians, imploring people to be reconciled to God. So certainly, we can understand priests in this sense. But what about when the seventh trumpet blows and the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ? Well, what do we do then? What is the work of priests then? Listen, there are aspects of priestly work which are only necessary when there are people who are not priests around. Alright? And those, those aspects of the work will cease when we enter the eternal state. But will it ever be the case that there is no work of worship to be done? Never. Never. In fact, the only square, or the only cubic buildings in the Bible are the Holy of Holies and the New Heavens and the New Earth, or the New Jerusalem. Which gives us an idea that essentially we're going to live in the Holy of Holies as priests to God, doing the work of worship throughout eternity. This is not to say that it will be, heaven will be an endless worship service. I think that's a wrong conception. I think we do need to, to check our hearts if we find worshiping the Lord boring and dull. And yet at the same time, I think also we, we need to recognize that when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, there was plowing to do as well as praying to do. And God's design for mankind has never been simply to sit around praying or sit around singing, or stand around, or dance around singing, or whatever. God's intention for us has always been 
sometimes to do the explicit work of worship, and at other times to worshipfully go about our various vocations. And even to have leisure. Mark chapter 8 and verse 32, I believe it is. Jesus takes the disciples aside after they come back from a busy season of ministry. And it says he took them away to rest a while, for they had had no leisure, even to eat. So Jesus looks out for the leisure of the disciples. In the Old Covenant, the priests were sometimes on duty and sometimes off duty. When they were off duty, were they allowed to sin and be unholy? No, obviously. And yet they were not always doing the work of worship in that sense. Likewise, I, I believe we ought to think of heaven as being perfectly human. Having no sin to keep us out of the Holy of Holies. Having been reconciled to God such that we have access to the Holy of Holies. And sometimes on duty, so to speak, doing the explicit work of worship and other times going about our vocations in appropriate, holy, human ways to the glory of God and all of creation. is our garden of Eden, so to speak, to work it and to keep it. Something like this is what it is meant by the fact that God has made us priests to God. All of this is what Jesus has done for us. What a glorious person Jesus Christ is. What a privilege to be numbered among Christ's people. Therefore, it leads very naturally into the next phrase. To him be glory and dominion forever. Now, some of you are saying, at least in your hearts, amen. It's okay to say it out loud too, by the way. As John does here. But some of you perhaps couldn't care less about Jesus. You're unmoved, distracted, apathetic, perhaps you're even offended or put off by Jesus. Verses 7 and 8 of Revelation chapter 1 make Jesus relevant to all of us. They're telling us all of this. He's giving us this greeting, grace and peace from the Father and the Spirit and the Son. Look at the Son. To Him be glory, dominion forever. Verses 7 and 8 make the glory and dominion of Jesus objective realities. Verse 7 says he's coming on the clouds, or coming with the clouds, which is an allusion to Acts 1, where Jesus ascends in the clouds, and where the angels say that he will return in the same way. It's also an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, where with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The clear teaching of, of Scripture. The clear teaching of Scripture is that you don't get to opt out of the whole Jesus thing. It's not an available option. So you may consider yourself an atheist now, or a Muslim, or a Hindu, or agnostic, or spiritual but not religious, or whatever, and you may feel like 
you can just opt out of the whole Jesus thing. It's just not for me. But in Revelation chapter 1, we do not read this. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and those eyes which have set themselves up psychologically to expect to see him will indeed see him. Those eyes who have believed in him will see him. Those eyes who with wishful thinking have wanted to see him will see him. No, no, no. Look at it. It says here, every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. You're either with Jesus or you're against Jesus. As he himself put it. There is no box that you can take. Opt out of this newsletter. Opt out of this email list. Opt out of this whatever. There is no opting out of Jesus. You're either with him or you're against him, as he put it. Verses 7 and 8 reassure us, Christians who are with him, that Jesus really will triumph in the end. He is, in Greek, the, the Greek word for almighty here in verse 8, is pantocrator, from which the ancient... Olympic sport of pancration is, uh, or the word for the ancient Olympic sport of pancration is derived. Now some of you may know what that is, you may have heard that term before, some of you don't. It's similar to a modern day MMA or UFC, pancration. Pan means all and kratos means power. All power, almighty. Pancration, you're gonna test in all ways to the nth degree who is the most powerful here. Guys would literally die sometimes in ancient pancration. Similar to a modern day MMA or UFC champion now. Jesus emerges from the fray victorious. Right now there is a battle, there is a fight, there is a war. But in the end, Jesus is the pantocrator. And it is reassuring to Christians that all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of it. That's not mean-spirited. But imagine if the scriptures told us that, that Jesus would be ignored and marginalized for eternity. And we've got to just keep just suffering with him. And he never wins. You could understand that, even if you're not a Christian, how it's encouraging to hear about final victory. I was encouraging to hear that in the end there is a reckoning for the enemies of Christ 
who are also the enemies of Christ's people. If they hated me, Jesus says, they will hate you also. And we've seen this play out in world history. It's encouraging for Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea to read that the Pantocrator is coming back and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Every eye will see him. Those who pierced him will wail on account of him. If you are outside of Christ, again, you just cannot ignore Jesus. You can as successfully ignore and avoid death as you can successfully ignore and avoid Jesus. But if you're just like, you know what, I just don't believe in death. I mean, it's fine for you. No, you know, it's no problem. I just basically believe that everybody should just basically live according to their truth. You know, so you speak your truth. And if you believe in death, you know, that's fine for you. No problem. I'm not, a, I'm not against death. It's just not for me. Right? You can as successfully ignore and avoid death as you can successfully ignore and avoid Jesus. It really doesn't matter if you believe in him or not with respect to whether or not he's coming back. Wouldn't you like to be loved and freed from your sins? To be made a priest to God and welcomed into the kingdom of the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, that great pantocrator, the Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you, if you are outside of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you. In fact, standing here with the commission to preach the gospel, I could even command you, with the authority of Christ Jesus, who, as Acts 17 says, commands men everywhere to repent. Turn from your sins. Turn away from the misery and condemnation of life outside of Christ and the fearsome prospect of the pain coming on the clouds and not being ready. And turn toward, in confident trust, and dependence toward this glorious Savior who is set before us in Revelation chapter 1. Indeed, to Him be glory and dominion.